Hello and welcome to Mind Food, a series of more casual content that's easily digestible from the Human Restoration Project. This episode is brought to you by our winter funding drive donors, three of which are Brandon Peters, Tracy Smith, and Anonymous coming in clutch. Thanks so much for everyone who donated to helping us reach that goal and fund our upcoming programming. We ended up crushing, absolutely crushing, our winter fundraising goal of $2,500 to bring you all the Edgy Futurism series here in the next few months. You can learn more about that series by watching the video here on YouTube. I'll have it linked somewhere up here. <laughs> and uh, if you're listening on audio, you can just head to our website and learn more about that there. So. Um, who am I? My name is Nick Covington. I'm the creative director of the Human Restoration Project, and I'm here with Chris McNutt, the executive director. And today on Mind Food, we're talking the best and worst edu trends of 2022, as well as our hopes for 2023. Now, what is interesting, Chris, before we get started on this, is that about this question in particular is that for this year, and this probably this year alone, we've now both spent half the year inside the classroom and ex- almost exactly half the year outside. So we kind of have, have had a foot in both of those worlds. And I think that gives us a pretty interesting perspective. Like I still keep catching myself thinking from the mindset of, you know, 10 years of classroom teaching, like how am I going to teach about the the um, house speakership drama, right? That's happening right, right now thinking, okay, if my kids wanted to know about that, how would I bring that to bear? Or how could I incorporate something that I'm reading or listening into, you know, a lesson about the middle ages or something in AP Euro. Um, so I don't know, do you find yourself thinking in the same, uh, kind of with the same set of perspectives? I mean, yeah, I constantly think to myself whenever I come across it, like AI, for example, I yeah. can't stop myself from from thinking, how can I make that into a project? Oh, you could do this with it. That'd be super cool. And then I sit there and then I realize, oh, I actually can't do that. I guess I could make something for someone else, but I don't have that uh, luxury anymore. Yeah. And it, and that's what's crazy is I think a lot of then our creative energy and that um, that desire to to teach and to communicate then goes into the Human Restoration Project, which is cool. So. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about upcoming things, I guess, in a, in a separate episode. Do you want to start with uh, with your best? Do we want to start with our worst? Let's Where start do with we our wanna... best. Check this okay. out. Kicking off our two best things of 2022. Is this just generic music or is this actually from something? Oh, this is Super Mario RPG. Is My this RPG? Okay. A little bit of yeah. trivia. Uh, yeah, I, I loved that game. I have a, I have a story. I had a Super Nintendo, and my dad sold it at a at a, one of our garage sales, and I was devastated. Um, and then we had Super Mario RPG, which also sold with it. And right now, that game is worth so much money. If you have a hard oh, yeah. copy of Super Mario I RPG, I sold that in, geez, like some at some point in college for like two hundred bucks to pay for textbooks. Yeah, uh, yeah. Shout out to emulators. Oh. Uh, yeah, anyways, exactly. uh, anyways, uh, I'll start with one of my uh, my best things of 2022 in terms of trends, right. and then I'll shift it back over to you. Um, so shout out to our, our discord community, uh, because it's something I was already thinking, but it was confirmed uh, by Chris Barber on our uh, discord, uh, which is one of the best things was the growth of like ungrading feedback driven learning, um, SEL, just general progressive ideas. Um, throughout the the previous year, there's been a lot of mainstream attention given to uh, on grading. Um, we've had our own graduate course on the subject. I've noticed more and more conferences and course offerings popping up. 
um, on moving away from grades. And it seems like there's less of an emphasis on the like standards based grading movement uh, and some of the other like mm. twists on traditional grading and more of an emphasis on um, how do we just get rid of this thing altogether and focus on portfolios, which only makes sense uh, given how like the job market is shifting, how more and more employers don't care about uh, more like traditional resumes or test scores and want to see something that you produce. So it's it's much it's catering to that workplace market as well as uh, a more progressive system in general that that's better for for kids. So um, that's been super exciting. And uh, shout out. Actually, I didn't even think about it, but my mug shut the teachers going gradeless uh, for continuing that movement and doing a lot of cool work uh, regarding that. Right on. You know, it's it's funny. I my my second best that I was going to talk about is kind of related to this. So maybe I'll just I'll just riff off of that here, um, which which is kind of exactly that. Um, going back to the context of the pandemic and just sort of the roller coaster that we've been on since uh, since 2020 now headed into year three with all of this stuff is I, I think alongside that ungrading kind of thinking about alternative ways of assessing students, which also relates to my other best, but I'll talk about that later. But I think there is more of like a shift to just reconnect with that human humanization. Um, you know, we have a, mm -hmm. a, certainly a biased perspective in our, or, our organization about that and and maybe are more sensitive in terms of just picking up those kinds of threads um, because that's the work we do every single day. But I, I have definitely noticed the conversation shifting more towards um, uh, health, you know, particularly of students, of educators, of, you know, um, uh, empl employees, of parents and families, of everybody else there. Um, an emphasis particularly on mental health, I think, has helped humanize some things, too. And I think that uh, rethinking of education and the role of schooling through that lens kind of has the uh, positive trickle down effect then in terms of what we do in the classroom, you know, and providing perhaps more breaks, being more cognizant of of student um, mental, emotional load, um, you know, kind of uh, feel, feeling the energy of the room a little bit more and being perhaps more responsive to that. Uh, if that's not actively happening, I think perhaps there's a, a lot more grace um, to allow educators and classroom teachers to, to make those changes on their own and justify it through that lens and say, hey, you know, we're not going to do this thing that I had planned today because I can kind of see that we're not you know, we're, we're, we're being responsive to some something somewhere else in the ether, something somewhere else in our environment. So, you know, we'll, we'll kind of take a day and, and we'll do that or we'll we'll restructure this assessment in a different way to make that work differently. So I think there's just this overall general trend and vibe towards more human centered. I don't know. Everything at least would be the would be the goal, but particularly for human centered uh, classrooms. So, yeah, I think those are good. The the ungrading perhaps coming becoming more mainstream in K-12 and higher ed and really seeing that as the tip of a spear towards changing humanizing practices across the board that's a good one to start off with i think too it it speaks to perhaps a, a challenge with this work that i hope more and more folks embrace this is not one of my hopes but um it is for sake of the conversation i guess uh which is uh folks embracing a more systemic uh outlook or perspective on those types of changes that you're describing so as mm -hmm. opposed to making school suck less by kind of working around the edges and saying like hey you know this lesson could be slightly better or hey let's not do this lesson today but we'll do it later instead focusing on root problems um and looking mm -hmm. at 
like why was it not good to begin with and really looking at a system level of how can we change things slightly more drastically um obviously within like your own context and your own power to do so but i think that uh collectively everyone could probably push harder uh to do some some kind of reimagination work within their classrooms and and, and see to that i think about especially released this year uh or, uh, 2022, uh, Alex Bennett's work, the trauma-centered, equity-informed, or equity Was that just this center. year? I believe so. Oh, my uh, gosh. It, it has been a very long year. <laughs> uh, but uh, a lot of Alex's calls to action in that book are centered around systemic changes as opposed to tacking on like uh, programs via like a guidance counselor or something of that nature. Like, Why are the problems there to begin with? I think we could use that exact same lens on grades on discipline on curriculum on interdisciplinary work et cetera, et cetera, uh and, and change things for the better right there's there's that there's that uh, apocryphal story um and and i won't say you know an origin because i think the origins are confused to history but it gets misattributed i think to a lot of different people but there's the story of you know people on the riverbank seeing all of these folks floating downstream you know, and one person goes out and rescues one and then more people start to come out. And, you know, the, the story can be as elaborate as you want it to be. But let's say the, the people on the bank form a human chain and they're going and pulling all these people out of the river. And one person gets this idea to say, like, oh, hey, like, I'm going to go upstream. So so take a break here. You know, I'm going to go upstream and actually see what it is that causes these people to be in the water in the first place. I think, again, the, the pandemic probably has a lot to, to do about this. Um, but it's, it's the case that I think a lot of people are pausing that, um, mm -hmm. that intervention work that like emergency, you know, pandemic work that, that we've been doing for, you know, a breakneck pace for three years and saying, okay, let's, let's pause this emergency work here and let's go, go upstream and kind of see what the upstream effects are of this and actually address it at the source. And, and maybe that's like a good framing to, to really help think about mental health and think about grading practices and think about those two as educators, um, heading upstream to look at the systemic, uh, the systemic impacts. Yeah. What's what one of what your else? Yeah. Uh, victories? Oh, one of my victories. Okay. A best. Okay. Yeah. Now I'm cheating a little bit because my best is also one of my worst. And I think you'll probably agree with this too. So I put on here, the chat GPT slash AI tools discourse as one of the mm -hmm. best. And then on the flip side of that, it also is one of the worst because, you know, like right. with anything sort of new and shiny in education, you have, um, all sides of uh, all sides of, of people like both trying to take advantage of it. And then, you know, the sense that there's an arms race and you have to just like respond to fire, fight fire with fire. And there's, um, mm -hmm. you know, there's like the chat GPT. I just saw this week the chat GPT um, AI that you can feed an essay to and it will see. It, it will like rate it to see whether or not it was written with AI. Um, and it's mm -hmm. like, oh, my gosh, it's like, very problematic. Is, yeah, 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 super. But but I thought mm -hmm. like a positive outcome of that chat GPT AI tools discourse is really forcing us to step back and reevaluate the purpose of assessment. You know, I've heard so many people say, well, I'm just going to, you know, I'm going to have to incorporate more, um, more oral um, assessments because, you know, regardless of what you've written or what you've submitted um, in terms of your writing and your work, if you can't talk about what you've written um, in, in, in a way that makes sense to another human being, well, then it's clear that those ideas are not your own or you don't really have the understanding to support it. So, right, just those quick check-ins. It doesn't have to be a big elaborate thing. Um, you know, a quick check-in just to like, hey, explain this concept to me here. Check off that box. 
you know, um, give that feedback. Um, it's just that quick conversation, that quick discussion. You know, those those student driven conferencing tools have always been a tool, you know, in the HRP toolkit that we've been talking about um, in our you know ungrading realm for for years and years. So so I think that's awesome to kind of see people's response to uh, uh, the perceived threat of say chat GPT or those AI tools being like, well, crap, I'm going to have to emphasize my classroom practice and assessment on the things that humans do really well, because now the, the machine tools can, you know, feed the content and skim the Wikipedias and, you know, frame everything else for me. I'm really going to have to emphasize the things that humans do well. So I think it's not only ref- caused some reflection on evaluating the purpose of assessment, but really then alignment with our values and the purpose of education. And just say like, well, why are we doing this stuff in the first place? You know, um, so not not only like, hey, am I going to have students write an essay on the topic of, you know, what were the causes of the Protestant Reformation? OK, that's probably something that chat GPT uh, can can write for you um, in a heartbeat if you can't just skim a Wikipedia article and, you know, summarize it already. Like that's a pretty low value assessment right there. So how can I take say that same content question and make it, you know, something more interesting that speaks to engagement and speaks to the value of, uh, of, I don't know, our relation to the divine or right. How do, how do human beings kind of organize themselves in spiritual communities or focus on, on the study of world religions and go out into, uh, you know, different churches and temples and, you know, visit, visit the world around you and explore those big picture questions, because then you not only understand the the causes or purpose of, say, a Protestant Reformation, but then you'll understand the human context in the world around you there. So, you know, that's one of those things that I think has really caused educators to flex th- those things that that make us awesome, right, which is the the human stuff. Um, it's making community connections, making connections to kids, getting creative in our in asking and answering those big pic- picture questions. How are we going to evaluate? How are we going to assess? Um, and really, kind of causing uh, a little bit of uh, of uh, positive disruption in that space. Yeah, I was going to include this on my best of, but I assumed that you were going to mention it, so I'll talk to it for a bit. Uh, this is actually something that we plan on talking about uh, potentially at a conference coming up. Uh, which is how can we be proactive rather than reactive when it comes to AI? Um, I would certainly include AI as a best of thing. To me, it's like the most exciting thing since maybe like a Wikipedia or the the internet. Um, it's it's honestly so fun and, and joyous to use. And I think that there's so many practical applications uh, that we could utilize with AI to make our lives better. Um, barring all of, again, the potential problematic uses of AI, which are things that you should be talking about um, within a classroom in the exact same way that you would talk about problematic uses of the internet or of Wikipedia or any other right. uh, like growth of technology. Um, like for example, uh, you know, I think it brings about in terms of that human centeredness, the question of what makes someone different than an AI. Like if you're writing a five paragraph essay and the AI writes a better five paragraph essay or the same five paragraph essay that you do, you know, what does that mean about what you're doing? Uh, where is right. your voice? Where is your creativeness and your expressiveness? Um, and I think it opens up interesting questions about uh, exploring uh, writing and reading and content generation for young people to recognize that it's not about following like a guidebook. Uh, there are certainly rules uh, that you'll learn about, but the the joy is in figuring out ways to break that those rules or, or find the thing that it is that you do. Um, and, and sadly that's left out of a lot of classrooms as we teach the test, 
uh, because they are very much rule based. Um, I, I think certainly that if you fed chat GPT a college board essay, for example, it probably would get a four or a five um, almost mm-hmm. instantaneously. So it would be my hope that as these technologies grow, that tests kind of change the types of questions or the, the types of ideas that they're asking for because they are going to be invalidated quickly um, as opposed to the reactive approach, which, uh, which will be like trying to figure out like, is this written by AI or not, AI or not and, and competing with like plagiarism or like a new turn it in or, or something of that nature. Yeah. Just one more way for us to, you know, be cops instead of educators to be, you know, surveillers and to, you know, yeah, um, to, to build more gates and build more walls instead of try to see how we can actually use these tools to, you know, as as collaborators like, you know, you're you're never going to. Well, I don't want to say never, but you're not going to use the tools in their current iteration to be able to, um, you know, bring evidence to bear on a topic of a question. So if I if, if I said like, hey, find find five sources or, or create, you know, this annotated, you know, kind of uh, source list, find some primary sources that are going to explain your perspective on a topic. I mean, may- maybe you could do that with, the, you know, the, the chat GPT I mean, it'll, tool. But it, it'll help you start, but there's also like problems with like whose sources are pulled from, who yeah. generated the initial list. Uh, there's a lot of questions to be had because you, you could certainly get started with that. But um, I was reading uh, someone was talking about how it's a very much a, a white male perspective. Uh, yes. In the AI itself, because the internet tends to have a kind of a white male bias uh, because of yeah. who are the programmers, who are the content creators, etc. Yeah, there's lots of cool tools for that. Do you want to go to your number two best then? Sure. Uh, so my number two best, a little bit different than what we've been talking about so far. I actually went on um, Social Blade and Google Analytics to confirm my suspicions about this uh, to make sure I wasn't just making this up which is one of my best of for 2022, and really you could say it was for 2021 as well, is that Edu celebrity culture seems to be dying. Uh, the, the old days of the uh, bald or slightly balding white guy uh, biking around on Twitter and giving positive affirmations about how teachers just need to do better for their kids um, is not nearly as popular as it used to be. I was checking out like to make sure to like, look at some of those accounts, uh, teacher like rock stars, et cetera, uh, those types of things. And all of them are down like 100, 200, 300 uh, percent since the heyday uh, pre pandemic when I feel like that stuff was really popular. Even if you go into yes. a, a Barnes and Noble or a bookstore, the education section is basically cut, which used to be filled with those types of books. Um, and I think that's because people are in general taking more seriously Issues of social justice, of uh, concepts that are are what would have been deemed as more radical um, or blunt within the education sphere, uh, and people want more nuanced academic critiques as opposed to just mm-hmm. banal platitudes. Uh, there was that seeping sensation of almost a self help type book um, in the teaching sphere, where you just kind of read it and you were like, "This isn't." really saying anything (laughs) this is just a a book that's talking about doing better like i know that um i I think people are really rejecting that especially now yeah Um, i think i think we don't have the luxury of platitudes any longer is what it is Mm -hmm. you know in in an age where you know burnout is so high teachers are already working incredibly hard you know, to get the results and uh, to do the things that they do every single day that someone <laughs> coming and say, hey, just like kids more or whatever is just, you know, hey, today, you know, do it for the kids, guys. Just do it for the kids. 
uh, teachers yeah. who say, I've been doing it for the kids for the last three years the during te- this pandemic. All teachers do it for the kids. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no other reason to do this job. <laughs> well, but, but I think also yeah. teachers, to your, to your point about those systemic, you know, r- social justice uh, issues, just like it's time for somebody else to do that work too. be like teachers have right. been doing it, but it's like we can't solve the issues of, you know, of, of of social economic inequality at the schoolhouse door. You know, we need some other parts of the political, social, economic system to pick up the slack. So that way, you know, they can address a little bit of that. So that way, you know, it's one thing off of teachers and schools plates. You know, um, if we could address issues of, you know, uh, racial, social justice outside of the classroom as well. Right. Then that'll also help facilitate the things that we want to do there. So, again, like schools as part of this ecosystem, realizing ha- just how much of the slack schools have been picking up for so long. And then perhaps related to one of my worst <laughs> things here, too, um, if I could make that transition is I think. Wait, are you going? Uh, are you did you already do both your victories? You're both. Your I best did. Hopes? Yes. So okay, I, did, I did the humanizing so and the transition into the, the negative. OK. Oh my goodness. The worst of 2022. Is this also Mario RPG? That's all from the same game. Yeah, yeah. I love it. Okay, this better not get us uh, uh, whatever um, copyright strike or anything like that. One of the worst trends, I think. But there's also, again, the ray of hope because I think it it died out just as quickly as as it came up. It was just like flash in the pan, two or three weeks of discourse, and then it was gone, which is the continuation of the learning loss narrative via those NAEP scores, which were the first post post pandemic. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, it's yeah. it's as bad as it has ever been. Speaking as someone who is is recovering from uh, from a case of it. But um, yeah, it, it 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 was interesting to kind of see how, you know, because I think in the previous iteration, back in the early part of 2020 and 2021, there was a lot of in emphasis on that learning loss narrative, right? Like it was, how can we avoid it? And then how can we recover from it? How do we do accelerated mm-hmm. learning? How do we do all these interventions? The NAEP scores came and they were like, kids have lost 20 years. <laughs> Our fourth graders are 20 years behind in their reading scores. And and I think everyone looked at that and they said, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> you know, I think I think we qu- very quickly realized the the structural um, impediments and structural restraints that the pandemic put on us just to say, like, w- what else were we expecting from these scores? You know, and in fact, they weren't really all that bad. They didn't fit into the existing narratives about school closures and urban schools, and they didn't fit into a lot of those things. So I think people saw those and, you know, they either confirmed their priors or they didn't. And it was kind of moving on from there. Um, and w- w- one thing that's really ironic is now that um, now that we're kind of past those those that NAEP score gap is I've seen some analysis that actually says, you know, the same people who are criticizing the public school closures and, you know, public school performance generally um, in, in light of the, the pandemic score reports have now turned a blind eye to the fact that, well, if you stack up the uh, the pandemic uh, uh, learning loss narrative alongside the, the the impact of school vouchers, particularly in mm-hmm. Ohio, no offense, um, in Indiana, the, the yep. impact of shifting those those programs to a voucher you know choice system was actually worse for performance than the pandemic was. So it's like if that's a thing that you really care about, 
perhaps you should care more about the impact of vouchers than on the the impact of right. you know a pandemic because you right. know we can we can recover uh you know from from this pandemic thing hopefully my goodness but um the impact of vouchers is a little bit more politicized on that front but yeah i think in in response to nape and this learning loss thing i i i think there also is um Again, that humanized thing where I think we're seeing then people leaning into structures and systems um, that might help alleviate some of those some of those impacts, at least as far as mental health, um, as far as supporting teachers, you know, as, as far as salaries, working conditions, all of those kinds of things, too. Um, you know, and I think then seeing the value of school as separate from its assessment scores. But I think that was one of the worst trends. But I, I think it was a little bit blunted um, in in its current iteration compared to what it was before. All right. Your your other worst. Your worst. What do you got? So one of my worst highly relates to that. And I think it's kind of the the opposite, the antithesis of the more positive response to to those changes. So on the one hand, we have people focusing more on um, SEL and care and, and making sure that all kids feel valued and loved, et cetera. On the other end, we have the push, especially late 2022, toward job readiness culture uh, and the idea that the way that we escape the the learning loss narrative in, in the quote unquote terrible state of schools is by making everything into a certificate, making school into a job training factory. I think specifically mm. recently with uh, the tweets by Secretary Cardona. Um, and we actually wrote about this like 2020. I remember writing about Secretary Cardona's background and how he has always been a little uh, like neoliberal. I mean, he's a traditional uh, like kind of left leaning bureaucrat. <laughs> so mm -hmm. that's what he does. He, he very much buys into that narrative of schools um, can help kids escape poverty they uh, are, are there to help kids make a, a thriving career, et cetera. And I don't think anyone would argue that it's not important for kids to get good careers. But the purpose of education is not for kids to get good careers. The purpose of education is to make a thriving democracy and help kids care for each other and make a better world, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and public school in the United States is one of the few places where um, you can have a community that can do that. Uh, that's not monetized. That's not based around uh, some kind of corporate uh, branding. And it seems like increasingly um, there are more and more partnerships between corporations and schools. Um, and there's more and more of a focus on almost certification at any cost. Um, the idea that we should double down on some of those negative practices regarding mental health uh, pre-pandemic uh, and ensure that kids can make a lot of money so that way they're quote-unquote successful. Um, and you've seen that in, in the workplace as well. There's been a lot of workplaces that have shifted away, for example, from the idea of a four-day work week or working from home or uh, extended breaks, et cetera, because they see potentially productivity going down or they like the bottom lines going down for various reasons. And they think, well, people just need to work harder um, in the exact right. same way that schools now are, are starting to see that same narrative with kids. Um, whereas like we could we could actually make our lives better. Um, it's not all about money. Uh, there, there is a lot more to life than just generating as much revenue and earning as high of a salary as possible. Like the way we feel matters a lot. <laughs> yeah, there, there's that issue of preparing kids for a workforce or preparing a workforce for the kids that we have. Right. So there, one, right. one kind of deals with the educational factors, the, the schooling factors. And the other one deals with the. Uh, 
the economy writ large. And right, we know that the economy is an incredibly dehumanizing um, structure institution. Uh, it's not done, done democratically. It's not a place where you have a lot of individual power. Um, so that's that's certainly one of the to kind of put a silver lining, I guess, on this is um, I think uh, I, I think one of the ways that we can actually help make those changes is model education in schools in ways that we would want to see workplaces uh, organized and arranged. And frankly, that's probably one of the reasons why people who want to privatize education attack public ed with uh, with such vigor is because they're one of the last bastions of um, union membership um, and collective power, um, a place where the public has a lot of input, you know, through local school boards, through um, state funding guidelines and federal, you know, strings, they all kind of come with different levels of accountability. And well, in the, in the private system, you don't have to deal with any of those things. You can pick and choose which students and families you want to serve, which ones are meeting your bottom line. You know, you can take that voucher money. You can, uh, you know, you can buy gift cards with it. You can fund your yep. own salary. You can <laughs> use it to pay the real estate that you're doing all these things from. So I think, yeah, I think the privatizers are sort of having a, a heyday with that. And of course, then if Amazon or Walmart or wherever can can fund those groups that are pushing for the privatization, then it's a kind of a quid pro quo from amongst all of those things. Um, and and honestly, that gets into my second uh, worst trend, sure. which I think there there again, there's a there's a little bit of a tit for tat here because the last few months, I think we've seen national politics post election. They sucked a lot of the air out of the education culture war. I don't think the mm -hmm. education culture wars have been as severe or as, you know, much of a highlight post-election. I think they were in the lead up to November because they were like a they'll big part of election strategies. Yeah. yeah, they'll be back, but they've kind mm -hmm. of sucked the air out of it. So that's one of my worst and kind of heading into now the new year. Legislative sessions will begin across the country. I think that's what I was going to say. Those issues are going to come back. Um, uh, whether it's about privatization, um, voucher schemes, education savings accounts, those kinds of things. We're going to see a lot of that in Iowa, but also, of course, the the issue of transgender youth in schools, transgender mm -hmm. youth in sports and just like the trans panic um, writ large, I think is 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 not a good trend generally for the future of education, for the future of democracy in this country. Um, and I think we're just going to see a lot of those impacts um, carried forward. And who knows what the next iteration is going to be? You know, we've we've moved past masking and vaccines, or at least, you know, the vast majority of people have um, as, as the premier culture war issue. We've gone through critical race theory and divisive concepts and things like that. We're seeing the the fruit of all of that now. But, you know, the trans panic is really like the newest iteration of of that culture war scheme. So I think we're going to see more of that in 2023. And I think we'll see, you know, a, a continued evolution, whatever is going to, you know, draw rage bait, whatever is going to draw headlines and clicks and, you know, drive social media is going to be the next thing. And I don't know, you know, what it's, what's going to be the next groomer panic or something, but right. yeah, I would, I would, yeah. I would like to see that just die out and be left in 2022, but we're really going to have to um, fight yeah. against that. I have a strong feeling that you'll see a, a huge connection between both those worst ofs where you'll see more and more folks who don't necessarily have a stake in the culture war 
utilize that narrative to promote more work-based training. The idea of mm. why should we focus on DEI or DEIJ and, and trans yes. rights, et cetera, when kids are falling behind in math and reading and aren't getting jobs. Um, yes. Which they won't explicitly say that, but there will be a catering to that audience um, yeah. to make that happen. It's so it's so um, ironic uh, that right that that's always been the drum that they'll bang on, right? That the DEI social justice stuff is a distraction from the basics, the basics, the basics, mm. the basics. Um, I'm reading Noliwe Rooks's Cutting School, and she has mm. a section in there, of course, going back to the post uh, Brown versus Board 1954, the massive resistance to all of that. Can you guess what the what the Southerner, <laughs> the uh, Southern politicians uh, guess what drum they were banging in the wake of uh, of desegregation orders? <laughs> uh, they were saying that, <laughs> yeah, all this integration is a distraction from the basics. Right. When mm. when we get right, when when black kids get into into these schools, it's a big distraction from their education. It's it's not good for the white kids education. It's all these other things. Um, right. So, of course, that's what we'll always see. Right. Is social justice is a distraction from X, Y or Z. And and again, what? Well, Cutting schools is going to be something that that we'll be talking with Nolia Rooks with certainly in this new year. But her point is that that's not like an evidence based case. The evidence based case actually says that, uh, you know, integrated schools have better social outcomes for kids. They have better educational outcomes for kids. And that's really been a thing that we have. That's a thread that we have lost in the last, you know, uh, 20 years, certainly. But like since the 90s, you know, kind of. Um, is is that integration really is a key here. But what we see are schools that are de facto segregated at rates that are higher than they've, you know, than they've ever been post Brown. And there are social economic incentives for people to play uh, to play into and to continue that social economic segregation. She calls this segronomics. So the people who take mm. advantage of those segregated communities, particularly in education for their own personal private gain. So that'll be a conversation we'll have to have with Nilliway in the new year. So kind of rough transition here to my second worst it has nothing to do with any of this. I guess like it vaguely does. Um, and this might be more of a unique one to me because I, I think that I I'm fascinated by this culture, uh, which is throughout 2022, the mainstream culture very much turned against Web3. So NFTs, uh, uh, your metaverse stuff, uh, cryptocurrency, all of these concepts, even I feel like people that have no idea what any of that stuff is or how it works, they have a negative association with it. They've seen what's happened to uh, Sam Bankman Free, they, they've seen the news regarding the crypto market and they've started to recognize, hey, maybe having a massive deregulated uh, market is just repeating the mistakes of like the 1920s. And that's the reason why it's all regulated. Um, regardless, of course, just the way that ed tech works, um, that's now starting to make a resurgence within the K-12 world. So after it dies in the business world, um, like many things, it starts getting pitched to K-12 public schools because there's a lot of money to be made in, in schooling in general. Um, and throughout 2022, I've seen more and more ed tech businesses pop up surrounding the idea of learn to earn, uh, where you utilize blockchain technology to have students, like, for example, submit quizzes or tests, et cetera, earn cryptocurrency, like their unique crypto. Uh, and then 
in theory, sell that in order to earn a profit, even though it isn't worth anything. Or, uh, for example, uh, turning in assignments and instead of a badge like you would on like an LMS, maybe you get an NFT, like a trading card um, that then could have value within this hypothetical market. We um, live in hell. That is, that is and, awesome. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't t- it's like a quick Google search of just type in like K-12 crypto or K-12 Web3. Um, this is more mainstream than I think people are giving it credit for. One of the main keynote speakers at Thanks. South by Southwest EDU is a crypto enthusiast. They're talking about Web3 uh, technologies. If you look up the lineup for South by Southwest EDU and some like future futurist conferences regarding uh, education, there is a shocking amount of Web3 uh, being pitched as a way to uh, redo how diplomas work or how micro-credentialing works or how like these different various technologies work. And without diving too far into it, because it would take the, the length of the podcast, the bottom line is, is that Web3 is not more secure. It's been hacked time and time again. It certainly isn't going to earn revenue. It's a, it's a scam. I mean, it's all just a giant scam. There are better My ways apes. that we could utilize <laughs> art. Uh, I think the best thing I saw about this, I think it was actually on Twitter. Someone said that like uh, AI was embraced at like 400 times the rate that uh, Web3 ever was because it actually has a thing that it does. Like AI actually has a use. Web3 is right. pointless. It's just, a, it's just a bunch of people that are trying to make money off of each other um, that couldn't be proven. Um, so yeah, definitely uh, steer clear of Web3 if you're in a... I don't care how good it sounds. Uh, there are better solutions in terms of ed tech. Um, that's very scary. Jeez. On that note, should we go to hopes? I'm, I'm bummed. I'm, you got me bummed out. I I'm going to get hopeful. move into our hopes for the future. I know. For 2023, Nick, what do you hope? Oh, my goodness. Well, my number one hope is I'm going to lean into I'm going to lean into edgy futurism. And I think while while this is like a clever branding thing for us, right? I don't think it's it's not a new idea, but I think it's a framing that was that we really latched onto. We did a lot of research and reading on. Um, and for me, it's really changed my perspective from, you know, it's not the choice necessarily between utopia and dystopia. You know, a, the dystopia is what we have if we don't make any changes. I love the idea, though, of this solar punk future of the future with humanity put back into it as as kind of I've embraced that framing, because, you know, if, if the, the sci fi dystopias and the totalitarian political uh, dystopias that we see in science fiction, young adult fiction, um, think Hunger Games for for kids, Blade Runner um, for adults or RoboCop and all these things. You know, those are the results of, you know, us kind of losing control of the tools that we were using to try and create better futures for for ourselves. And so what a, what a solar punk future does is it looks at actually, you know, it says those things are not inevitable. We we can choose to embrace technologies and tools that are actually going to work for everybody, and not just work for you know the dystopian um, corporate faceless corporation you know that produces the AI that eventually you know takes over you know our our lives or whatever. So our vision of edgy futurism is like education with humanity put back in that emphasizes all of those things that we've talked about that connects to you know, those values that have driven this organization for a long time, but also then in just expanding those semiotic domains of education to really reimagine, truly reimagine, like what education is for and what it's capable of accomplishing. 
Um, and I think that connects a lot to the co- the previous conversation that we've just had about, you know, utopias, dystopias, those best and those worst things. Like we're not going to achieve a different future if we don't uh, if we don't start to tinker, if we don't start to make those tiny changes, if we don't have a grassroots um a grassroots movement toward a revolution right so it's not it's not that a revolution is going to happen and we're all going to be participants in this in this in this thing right the revolution is is in this conversation the revolution is in right the the work that you do in your classroom every single day like the those conversations those 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 little drips and drops that accumulate right and snowball into those big downstream effects you know, um, uh, as as we move through space, as you move through time, as you move through social spheres, right? It's like starting those chain reactions. And as we've talked a lot, Chris, in the last year since our conference to restore humanity, right? That those words of Henry Giroux as hope as a platform for action, like that's really where we're at. And it's really like, okay, we've seen the worst that humanity has to offer. <laughs> we're going to choose differently. Right. We're going to hope for a better future. We're going to put our stock in it, but then we're going to work to actually start to make that that change. So our edgy futurism um, series is going to be workshops that kind of move us in that direction of speculative fiction, actually getting us um, pushing us into a little bit of discomfort to think differently about the future. Um, and then a lot of the other uh, uh, sessions in there as well to, to actually give us the tools and the community to reimagine um, and to actually do that work differently, both in our in, in our workspaces and our classroom spaces and college and our, you know, in our work lives, kind of whatever. So integrating um, all of that into like one thing under that banner of edgy futurism is, is sort of the vision that we have for that. So I'm I'm really excited. I'm hopeful for that. And I think, you know, we can help propagate that influence and that um, that notion of like an incremental grassroots revolution um, for more people. What do you got? Um, That's basically my first one. My first one was all about uh, ed tech doing something good um, and that we can actually utilize technologies to make our lives better in and out of the classroom. Um, I'm actually quite hopeful for that. I I think about, for example, again, the invention of the Internet. I think despite all of the problems the Internet brings uh, to our world, and I'm sure that people would argue that our lives have made worse by um, the Internet in various ways, I think. Overall, it's a net positive in terms of the ability to communicate with other people, people who didn't have voices before being able to amplify their message and talk with other folks, uh, folks uh, that were historically marginalized, being able to amplify their message and have people hear it. And also just all the different like tech tools, just like cool stuff that like average everyday people can do, whether it be graphic design, whether it be uh, like being able to like, uh, like showcase like video or, you know, the various different things you could do are more accessible now than they ever have been. Um, and despite the fact that the vast majority of ed tech sucks <laughs> in attempts to uh, replicate many of the traditional notions of school, right. um, there are ed tech companies that are um, doing some cool stuff. For example, back at that conference, we had a Floop, which I've always been like a huge proponent of, doing some cool feedback-driven learning stuff with, with technology. Um, so it's not that technology is bad. It's just that you have to really dig through the weeds to find the good stuff. So I'm hoping that yes. more and more folks do some some awesome work with, with technology. And it's it's right curating and cultivating a toolkit that is going to help right. you right achieve a purpose rather than say 
you know, oh, here's this tool, find a way to incorporate this into your practice. Like that's usually the a backwards way of, of starting. And a lot of times we can't help that, you know, like I remember as a new teacher being like, oh, I think this thing is cool. How can I use it? And sometimes that found its way into my practice. A lot of times <laughs> it was kind of a one and done to be like, I had this, this cool experiment. Maybe it worked, maybe it didn't, but I don't want to, I don't want to do that again. It doesn't fit into, you know, the classroom flow. Um, so yeah, like it's just, it's just a way of thinking about um, these cool tools as ways to facilitate the awesome stuff that we already want to do in our classroom, right? If we want our kids right. to be connected, how can we use tools to be connected? If we want our kids to be critical thinkers about information and media, how can we use these tools to be able to do that? The AI tools in particular, right? Those are great tools to be able to do that. Or how can we, you know, how can we put a, 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 how can we have our kids actually help partner with those AI tools to be, to generate new things? So, you know, how, and, and then model that for kids and kind of be the guide on the side to actually facilitate that. Like, I think right now, um, uh, you know, I've talked to you, Chris, about like I got Minecraft for my daughter for Christmas and I've ended up playing most of it, um, <laughs> uh, you know, because it's it's such a cool, neat, you know, sandbox. I'm always finding new things to do, but my daughter doesn't like to play it unless I'm playing with it, too, because she says, like, it's too hard. And really what that means is like she just hits walls that are intuitive for me as a game player, as a, you know, experience, more experienced person. But if I'm there just to help her get over more of those hurdles, then she gets really involved in that in in that game and that world and like telling a story with the space that she wants to be in. So it's like we still need like adults to model and scaffold and build these tools for alongside kids. So why not teach them how to use chat GPT or these AI generated art things to be like, hey, you know, um, how can we you know, wh what does this help us? answer about these questions like what is art what do humans bring to art like what goes into creating these those things whose perspectives are they how can we use it as a generative tool to actually a feedback partner to have us help generate better ideas you know generate thesis statements i don't know or right you and know the, design the ethics of it as well like how do yeah. we use technology in an ethical way in the exact same Ooh, way that like I, yeah. you wouldn't just like copy and paste all the content from a web article and claim it as your own. Right. If you're generating art on an AI generator, like whose art was that? Is it ethically sourced? What companies are doing it ethically? Can it be done ethically? Huh. Like those are all interesting questions that could be embedded into most curriculums. Um, that's things that kids would be interested in because it deals with things that they're seeing every single day. And if they're not, yeah. ask them and see if they'd be interested in it. I think it's cool, um, but maybe the kids don't and you could talk about something else. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Like, yeah, I, I just get excited. Like those are the, those moments where I was like, man, I wish I could be in a classroom tomorrow um, doing that work. So um, am I on to my next hope? Yes, you are. All right. Mine mine is, a, is less education focused, I think, but it is, <laughs> but it is, um, it is focused on some of the things that I talked about previously in that, in that, teachers recognizing their humanity and the need to change structures. And my second hope is labor militancy <laughs> for the new year across oh the board, but yeah, particularly yeah. for educators, right? We need to recognize our collective power in all of this. And one, one podcast I was going to have in this fall and then scheduling and things kind of fell through was with Kim Kelly, uh, who's a, who's a, a, a Formerly a music journalist turned like premier labor journalist in the country. Um, someone that that I've known for years, you know, on metal forums and been to concerts with and stuff, which is crazy to see her success. But she wrote this awesome book um, called Fight Like Hell, 
which is about sort of the it's like <laughs> a people's history of the labor movement. You know, mm-hmm. um, through the through the lens of women, you know, racialized minorities and these these groups who really, you know, helped build the the world of work that we understand it to today, like who who resisted successfully, collectively at great cost against um, the forces who, you know, saw their lives and livelihood as profit exploitation, you know, Um and so I was going to have a conversation with her in the fall, again, scheduling or whatever. Hopefully we can we can reschedule that for the for the spring. But we are living in a time where there's like unprecedented support for organized labor and for labor unions. It's as high as it's ever been. But I don't think we've seen that translate into a lot of successful radical action. I mean, maybe with Starbucks and baristas. Right. Oh, we saw in 2022. Um, John Deere had a, their first mm-hmm. strike in like 40 years and got awesome concessions out of that. Um, but we haven't seen that translate into education in the same way that we did, say, in 2018. Red for Ed was huge, right? Uh, uh, places where labor strikes were illegal, right? These places successfully went on strike and got massive concessions. You know, that helps bolster the movement politically. That helps. Um, uh, improve the practical working conditions um, for educators, which improves, you know, uh, uh, classroom learning spaces for students. So it's this huge mutual, you know, web of growth there. But a hope that I have is to see more of that labor militancy, especially headed into, you know, this legislative session um, where the aforementioned bills are going to be uh, on the, you know, on the table. So I, I hope we do see labor organizations step up in support of you know, trans transgender um, um, compatriots, right? Transgender members in particular, um, but you know, for everybody, like recognizing basically that you know, an attack on one is an attack on all. If they're dehumanizing our transgender, uh, uh, you know, comrades, then you know that's 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 just one uh, more uh, um, step towards you know dehumanizing all of us. So it's really like putting up this huge front. So. I don't know. I have I have real high hopes for that headed into the new year. Um, I don't I don't have intel on what exactly that's going to be. But, you know, if it's going to be on Amazon, if it's going to continue in Starbucks, if it's going to filter into other industries. But, um, you know, I think worker power and labor militancy is going to need is going to be one of those keys to achieving a more humane, humanized, you know, maybe not that quite solar punk thing. But you know what I'm saying? Like getting more power, democratic voice in our economic social sphere and our working conditions and stuff is something I have a lot of hopes for. Same, same thread really for, for my second hope, which is we were, we were talking before about how there's been a lot of growth within ungrading SEL, et cetera, in the previous year. It's my hope then that educators and young people advocate and grow and expand into other progressive topics. We talk about this a lot at our own PD, which is when you start stepping into ungrading, for example, it's inevitable that you're going to start questioning other assessment practices. You're going to start questioning homework and testing, the types of projects you do, the the level of student voice and power within the classroom, and then Mm -hmm. diving into other kind of like human-centered or progressive ideas like restorative practices, self-determination, even uh, food uh, and the types of food that kids could eat every single day and, and what access they have to empowering healthy food. Um, so I, it would be my hope that one, um, folks dive deeper and deeper into those other progressive systems other than just ungrading uh, as they start to, to tackle those ideas. Um, and it's, I think, a little bit 
more far-fetched, uh, but I would hope that it happens, is that in terms of that labor militancy, that that unions adopt more of a stance on pedagogy. Uh, oh, unions yeah. historically have focused a lot on um, like labor hours, conditions within the classroom, uh, standing up for, for actual issues uh, like identities uh, and, and folks and ensuring that they are uh, successfully defended, et cetera, which all of those things are vitally important. However, yeah. I also think that there's more space for young people to have their voices heard uh, regarding the actual pedagogy and teaching within school, uh, whereas the argument isn't simply for better working hours better work in general um mm. for example it's not just like advocating against standardized testing which is part of it but also like how can we ensure that schools uh, that have unions also have the best research possible uh for example restorative practices how do we mm. shift away from more carceral networks of school um, and ensure mm. that kids are not being uh kind of led into either directly via the school or after school um, into prisons um, how can we move away from that that type of pedagogy? Um, so it'd be my hope that we see we see more of a united front in that regard. Can I add on that note? So sure. one of our most recent episodes, one of our recent episodes was actually with a journalist uh, who went to right. Des Moines high schools, <laughs> Des Moines Roosevelt in particular, uh, but to see the impact of them, the 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 city of Des Moines police, they pulled their school resource officer contracts back in 2021. So Des Moines was like, what are we going to do? And they said, let's implement restorative practices instead. So the article she wrote was the city that kicked out school, uh, kicked out cops um, and implemented restorative practices instead. And it's a great article. But speaking on the labor side of that, one of the biggest proponents of that and the people she speaks to in the issues uh, in the article are members of DMEA, so the Des Moines Education Association, which, you know, is the local for the Iowa State Education Association, you know, which is the Iowa chapter of the NEA. So there is a lot of, I think, um, I don't I don't know if it's at state level is a little bit problematic in some places. You know, we've got a, mm -hmm. we got a red state. You got a I don't know. Membership's an issue. But locally, you know, in urban areas, I think there is a big push, you know, for those kinds of things. So it's so that's cool. Right? If you listen to that conversation. Yeah. That's a great that's a great conversation from a recent episode as well. And that's that's kind of our whole thing, which is you can't wait for someone to rule on these ideas from the top down you have to start researching and implementing these practices at a local level in whatever way you can, whether that be within the context of your four classroom walls at what level, whatever level is possible, or advocating with other educators if you're in a union, perhaps going that way or without yeah. a union. Uh, there's there's multiple yeah. different ways. And if ways you that don't like what your union is doing, you can advocate for change within it. Like if you're right. a member, you can run for an office within there and then, you know, join those processes that actually do have impacts and inputs on those practices. So um, I've seen it happen. <laughs> so yeah, there's space um, for everyone to get involved in making those changes. It's yes. both an incrementalist approach where you're trying to move the everyone at once and it, it takes a lot of effort and every little small step makes a difference or it's right. folks that are taking more radical actions that are taking much larger steps it just requires folks to be aware of their of their talking points so they understand like what it is they're talking about they have their research but also yeah. that are willing to take small or big risks based off their own personal uh privilege um it's certainly easier for you know for us to make these changes especially now that we're not you know, literally in the classroom, we can be a little bit more blunt about what we think. Um, but there's space for everyone to make a difference within their own context. Yeah. So, I mean, again, 
the 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 revolution is not gonna is not some distant thing that we're waiting for, right? Like every single day, you know, chipping away, um, contributing, uh, you know, that drip, drip the drips and drabs that are gonna accumulate into big long term changes over time. And so, focus on what you have, you know, within your locus of control, within your power, relative power and privilege in your context, and start to you know whittle away in 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 that direction and just like you know slowly we can grow that conversation and you know restore humanity to education exactly and it, just keep in mind too 2023 uh the change is happening there is a lot of really cool stuff going on don't be dismayed by the algorithm making you hate everything and everyone there are a lot of really cool local initiatives that are making a difference on the ground uh, we can't let our cynicism and apathy uh, stop us from from even attempting to make those changes. This was awesome, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Yeah. Thanks for joining us too, Nick. So, so if you want to learn more, you can go to our website, (laughs) humanrestorationproject.org. You can follow us on anywhere, you know, Twitter, post, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, search for Humanres Pro. Um, If you like this podcast, rate, review us on all of the apps, um, all there, like and subscribe on YouTube. (laughs) Do all the things, please, because every little bit, you know, helps uh, get our work in front of more eyeballs. Um, And yeah, uh, hope to see you next time and let's restore humanity together.